Hi there, friend. My name is John Werner. I used to be a part of the largest cult in the United States. After studying the Bible, Christian history, and ministry, I set my sights on confronting the problematic nature of white evangelicalism in the United States. In 2019, I published my first book as a first step in addressing the subtle issues of this complex system. This podcast will continue that work under the same title. Welcome to The Cult of Christianity. What is prayer? According to question 178 of the Westminster Larger Catechism, prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God in the name of Christ by the help of his spirit with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies, end quote. The history of this verbose catechism and its companion, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, was an assignment from the British government. In 1643, the Long Parliament of England called the Westminster Assembly to produce the Westminster Confession. Scottish delegates found the final draft disappointing and inept. So four years later, the assembly gave up on writing just one catechism and split it into two. The Westminster Shorter Catechism would be easier to read and concise for beginners, and the larger catechism was to be more exact and comprehensive. Even so, to the modern reader, both of these catechisms and the preamble Confessions of Faith are loquacious and exhaustive. They are also extremely biased. The Westminster Assembly was defiantly anti-Catholic. The four-year process of publishing had the goal of bolstering the socio-political ties to Protestantism and Catholic history. They had hundreds of years of developed documents describing the details of their doctrine, while this new Protestant movement was striving to find order amongst their anarcho-religious idealism. Though their drive was to simplify the message of scriptures, it would seem that being succinct might erase their need for organization. Though they pitched themselves as anti-traditionalists, the Protestants had the need for a core heritage. It was inescapable. And with this call-and-response style of catechism, often a staple of Christian child-rearing, they would define a Christian term through an answered rhetorical question and spend subsequent questions developing every nuance they could pontificate. One of the facts about these confessions and catechisms that is fascinating is that they were proof-texted with various scripture verses, unlike the much older Catholic confessions and catechisms, which viewed scripture much differently. While the Protestant doctrine sounded more like uh, these new English translations of the Bible that were coming out, the Catholic documents built their dogmas on an entire biblical narrative and less on specific verses or passages. According to the Catholic Catechism of the Vatican, quote, prayer is a surge of the heart. It is a simple look around toward heaven. It is a cry of recognition and of love, embracing both trial and joy. Prayer is the raising of one's mind and heart to God or the requesting of good things from God. But when we pray, do we speak from the height of our pride and will or out of the depths of a humble and contrite heart? He who humbles himself will be exalted. Humility is the foundation of prayer, and when we humbly acknowledge that, we do not know how to pray as we ought. Are we ready to freely receive the gift of prayer? Man is a beggar before God. End quote. So in typical Catholic fashion, the language of their catechism is more poetical yet vaguer, and still manages to stay on brand with the guilt-tripping of a mother-in-law. Perhaps surprisingly, 
a later question in the Protestant Westminster Confession uh, and Catechism does the exact same thing. Seven questions after uh, they define what prayer is, they say, quote, We are to pray with an awful apprehension of the majesty of God and a deep sense of our own unworthiness, necessities, and sins with penitent, thankful, and enlarged hearts with understanding, faith, sincerity, fervency, love, and perseverance, waiting upon him with humble submission to his will. Perhaps this humble, submissive, and shameful posture is symptomatic of past culture. Many evangelicals are less catechized and might be surprised to learn that this is part of their heritage. After all, popular Christian music talks to Jesus in a much more informal manner, and verbatim declares that Christians should approach the throne of God boldly when they pray. And it's important to note that prayer is not only practiced by Christians. Prayer is one of the five pillars of Islam. For Muslims, prayer is supplication, purification, and an act of worship. The most well-known and obligatory act in Islam is the performance of five daily prayers. Judaism likewise treats prayer as an act of obedience and focusing their mind on the commandments of God. They are also obligated to pray three times a day. And most prayers in Jewish cultures, both private and public, are pre-written. Prayer across different religions typically is offered to a god or a demigod figure. However, in Catholic and Eastern Orthodox traditions, praying to historical saints or even deceased loved ones is not uncommon. Prayer is not strictly religious. Many people pray in times of distress or discomfort dissociated from devotion to a doctrine. In other words, defining prayer is vague enough that many sects and groups of people will agree with a broad definition but disagree on the practical outworkings. The most functional definition of prayer is communion with the divine. But what is communion? Is it conversational language, formal petitions, a repeated word, or a preoccupation with a vague spiritual concept? What is the divine? Is it the Judeo-Christian God, the Islamic Allah, Mother Nature, the Holy Saints, or dead grandparents? If there were no religious wars in history, it would be a lot easier to say that detailing the definition could be deeply personal and individualistic. Perhaps that is still the case. However, when it comes to white evangelicalism's attitude towards prayer, the system cultivates compulsory templates. On the more reformed and conservative side of evangelicalism, prayer is taught as a solemn act of reverent submission, with all requests being made in a desperate and contrite demeanor. In the sexier, more seeker-friendly white evangelical churches, prayer is taught more like casually talking to a god, or in some weird blended way, a divine sugar daddy. These prayers, in both fashions, are to be exercised both privately and publicly. If investigated, private prayer seems to be a necessary spiritual ritual uh, for spiritual growth, while public prayer seems to be more an honor to tradition or fulfillment of divine ordinance. Perhaps corporate prayer might even be taught as a way to, re, uh, to, to unite the church community, uh, both local communities and the timeless eternal community. Within this kind of Christianity, prayer seems to be for Christians only, to God only, and requires some sort of specificity. Regardless of how little reverence they might choose to preserve from their roots, 
they have not branched out so far from their origins as to reject their exclusivity. Prayer is not so much a human thing to evangelicals, but rather a Christian thing. The only exceptions uh, to this practice are um, maybe a moment of conversion or perhaps while a non-believer was grieving at a funeral. Prayer life outside the evangelical cult is likely viewed by them as misguided or perhaps even a mockery. When analyzing this supposedly Christian view of prayer, one cannot help but wonder what the Bible actually has to say about communion with the divine. Most New Testament references to prayer suggest that requesting favors from God should be a normal practice. Verses about prayer suggest it is a safe way to approach God for comfort with no fear about proper wording or demeanor. In contrast, public prayer is actually condemned by Jesus himself in Matthew 6. Quote, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. End quote. In Old Testament literature, prayer is framed as a spiritual and worshipful practice. In fact, this was the primary means of understanding God's revelation. In fact, uh, ancient Jews often viewed prayer as a desperate war cry and a method to obtain God's favor and or instructions throughout their various tribulations. There are a few texts that treat prayer as an exclusive privilege for believers, and virtually none that demand the kind of solemn reverence that catechisms both Protestant and Catholic seem to mandate. Imputing a white evangelical interpretation of prayer back into scriptures is an inaccurate method of analysis. Accurate historical understanding of prayer would be better aided by understanding the words mindfulness and meditation. All these concepts swirl around a larger form in the Platonic sense, and it is worth circling in a thorough way because a more typical inference might be quite far from its foundations. To the evangelical cult, their programming might encourage a negative reaction to connecting dots from Hindu meditation to how they perceive prayer. Further, it might seem even more offensive to bring a modern neo-Buistic lens to this ritual. And I want to assure the listener that my agenda in bringing these other spiritual sects into the conversation is not to take away any significance from evangelicals' practice of prayer, nor am I trying to merely delude or completely discredit their long-standing tradition. I am more focused on correcting any ignorant conceptions that the culture of prayer an average churchgoer in the U.S. might experience was in any way historically typical in ancient times. Modern evangelical prayer, whether it be considered proper or not, is radically different than the practices of Jews and Gentiles. I do want to acknowledge that the intellectually honest or more academic Christians might actually be encouraged by this more educated definition. Not only is replacing implications that prayer is a telepathic phone call with the idea that it is a mindful meditation spiritually helpful, but it is also likely more in keeping with Christian history and mythology. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12-22 through 22 state, We ask you, brothers, 
to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. It would be quite ridiculous to assume that this short passage was ever meant as a command to have some sort of Pentecostal exuberant constant talking to Jesus. The Apostle Paul seems to assume the audience would understand that praying without ceasing means that you are mindful of the right things regardless of the environment you are in. In other words, do not just pray when you need something or as some sort of performance, but take the time to meditate on overcoming evil with good. An exegesis of this sort is completely consistent with Orthodox Christianity. Perhaps some white evangelical pastor out there is thrilled to hear someone else talk about this. However, this is a minority belief about the practice of prayer among white evangelicals in the United States. The modern evangelical understanding of prayer is more derivative and less precise. As an evolution, that does not make the current practice of prayer a bad thing. The only potentially problematic picture on this puzzle piece is that evangelical leaders are presenting their version of this ritual on the authority of ancient Christianity or the Bible. And in their defense, they did not completely invent the version of prayers um, that are verbose or conversational. Catholic leaders historically prayed as covert homilies, and they continue to do so. And Protestant reformers wrote prayers as poetic pleadings in order to inspire their political allies. Prayer became a derivative long before the United States existed, let alone hundreds of years before Billy Graham's crusades. Thankfully, I do not think all evangelicals have deviated so far from the original meaning of biblical and historical concepts of prayer that the baby has been thrown out with the bathwater. Many evangelicals, knowingly or not, do participate in meditation and mindfulness. They do declare that they want to align their hearts with God's. That requires passing through certain layers of consciousness and will inevitably bring notions of oneness from the core of their souls. Maybe some problematic phrases might pop up, but putting those aside, I do not think that folks' personal prayer is a space where outside judgment should abound. This higher level of thinking and discerning may sound like hippy-dippy BS or religious mumbo-jumbo waffling somewhere between the ritualistic manifestation and spiritualistic revelation, but it really boils down to a rational idea. Prayer is wishing. A more cynical humanist might use that phrase in a derogatory tone. I do not actually wish to be disparaging, at least in this instance. Wishing, whether it be upon a star or in a journal, is part of the human experience. Expressing a desire or hope for something, especially if its achievement feels unlikely, is not a symptom of stupidity, but tenacity. If you are a sports fan, there are countless examples of athletes willing themselves to a win or an accomplishment against all odds. If you have been different uh, around um, differently abled folks, 
you have witnessed uh, seemingly miraculous triumphs of unlikely personal goals. Many in my generation like to talk about manifesting. The archaic understanding of manifestation was a spiritual concept becoming a tangible or physical thing. Currently, I would say it is more regularly understood as wishing for something with confidence that it will happen. Wishing is an action brought forth from feeling hopeful. The primary mechanism of human survival boils down to hope. We hope that the next day will be better than the previous. We hope all changes will be improvements and the things that hold steadfast will provide comfort. Wishing is active hoping. As positive as wishing sounds, it is not easy or guaranteed to be effective. In fact, it might be an engagement of delusion or toxic positivity to view wishing as necessitating a result. Wishing is not a cause and effect type of action, even if it might be a variable in some consequences. Healthy wishing understands that its mere existence does not predicate anything on its own. Does this make wishing pointless? Perhaps if you are committed to diehard rational materialism, there is no point in wasting time on wishes. Typically, I do not get along with materialistic rationalists, partially because life is not simply actions and consequences. Ideals and subconsciousness play a significant role in our individual and collective existence. Wishful thinking carries a negative connotation of careless fantasy or unproductive aspirations. Yet, as far as I can tell, wishful thinking is the only type of thinking, minus sadism and masochism, about the future that can be done. All predictions are guesses, though some may be more educated than others. Whatever extent one occupies their mind with the unknowable potential of time certainly is plotted on a spectrum of health. Wishing the sun to rise tomorrow is normal, while wanting to win the lottery is less advisable. I bother to exhaust the concept of wishing because I think it is wrong-headed to assume that headspace dedicated to desiring future outcomes is strictly spiritual. If I'm going to bother critiquing the concept of prayer, I better be precise about what I am critiquing. I could postulate my own opinions about how much manifesting um, realities is possible, but I'm more attempting to alleviate any accusation of hypocrisy in my criticisms. Wishing is a human inevitability. When Christians pray, I am not going to engage in denigrating the human need they are fulfilling. Saying out loud or taking personal space to put words to your wishes is acceptable and perhaps even healthy. I am also not trying to insult evangelicals by associating them with the word wishing to something uh, they view as sacred. I am actually trying to relate to them on a human level. I am not judging them for engaging in prayer because I do not find it ridiculous from a secular or religious perspective. The problematic piece is that associating a ritual like prayer with a common human experience such as wishing would even strike as insulting. Prayer being exclusionary, in my opinion, is more offensive than the mystifying it. Not every action has to be inclusive. I can respect the fact that some of the wishes and confessions that are revealed in group prayer should be re uh, reserved for um, safe people and environments. Every sentence internally and externally uttered does not need to be presented to the masses. 
However, what part of the evangelical cult has proven to be a safe environment? I'm also not asking to be invited to people's personal internal monologues. The fact that they view their audience to be of one is fine. But how is it safe to pray one way in your head on your own and another amongst your chosen group? Doesn't that breed duplicitousness? Prayer being a privilege for those part of your country club seems to be more aggressive than my deconstructive wonderings about what human elements lie behind divine invocation. The exclusive nature of prayer among evangelicals might seem contrived. Perhaps they may invite a potential convert into their prayers, hoping they will renounce any agnosticism and commit to their cult. However, they would reject my ability to pray if I did not express certainty that a God exists. More than that, they would not take my prayers seriously unless it was to their specific understanding of God. If we go back to the biblical understanding of what prayer was for Jews and early Christians, if there was only certain proper ways to pray, that means there were only certain proper ways to think. Again, it is a perfectly accurate statement that there are right and wrong ways of thinking. It is drastically inaccurate to state that the rights and wrong the right and wrong ways of thinking are perfectly knowable. Historically, prayer is part of an effort in seeking truth. It seems that this method of revelation is being gatekept from the masses and reserved for the holy evangelicals. There is no biblical base for this limited nature of prayer. Managing the flow of communication with their God seems to be antithetical to their converting drive. Unlike other rituals that might make sense as perks to becoming a member of their community, overseeing who can pray and how they can pray seems to quite literally be mind control. All of this critique is contingent on understanding prayer in a certain way. I think your average evangelical does not run diagnostics on the realities of what prayer is and does. Talking to God sounds so harmless when talking is thoughtless and the divine fits in your pocket. Prayer may feel natural, or maybe even necessary, less systematic, and more of an individual endeavor. Perhaps it is therapeutic or uniting, and all critical assessments might seem unnecessarily antagonistic. Is this practice truly harmless? Well, assessing harm will certainly be a difficult task. Prayer has both positive and negative consequences and features. Both of those results need to be explored in any attempt to arrive at consensus or truth, but the minutiae details of historical, biblical, religious, cultural, and practical context of this concept is rarely reviewed and dangerously indefinite to most who participate in it. Why do you pray should be an easy question to answer. I don't need dissertations or academically qualified answers from evangelicals, but I do need reasonable and coherent responses. If you search your heart and realize you only pray because you were told to, that should be uncomfortable at minimum. For now, I want to zoom out from the evangelical nature of prayer on a personal level and focus more on the general outcomes of prayer. This subject has been observed for quite some time. The efficacy of prayer 
has been a topic of formal research since at least the 1870s. Studies on prayer are most reputable when they are formulated to ascertain whether whether intercessory prayer has a blind effect on the health of those who do not know they are being prayed for. Almost unanimously, studies on prayer throughout history have not contradicted that prayer can reduce psychological stress, regardless of the god or gods a person prays to, with a variety of guesses as to what may cause such an effect. However, those studies are contingent that a person knows they are being prayed for or is doing the praying themselves. Five million dollars is spent worldwide on prayer research each year, which is a relatively small but not completely minuscule uh, amount considering that this topic is a, uh, has a spiritual nature to it. The largest study from the 2006 STEP project found no significant difference in patients recovering from heart surgery whether the patients were prayed for or not. A meta-analysis of several studies related to distant intercessory healing published in the Annals of Internal Medicine in 2000 looked at 2,774 patients in 23 studies and found that 13 studies showed statistically significant positive results. Nine studies showed zero effect, and one study showed a negative result. Other meta-studies of the broader literature show little to no effectiveness for praying for healing. For example, a 2007 systemic review of intercessory prayer reported inconclusive results, noting that 7 of 17 studies had, quote, small but significant effect sizes, end quote. But the review noted that the three most methodologically rigorous studies failed to produce significant findings. And I do not bring up these studies to invalidate or belittle praying for healing. There are numerous problematic variables to even studying prayer in this way from a philosophical, theological, and scientific viewpoint. Prayers are often scripted in these studies and often are offered inorganically. Further, the studies do not account for the fact that if the prayer is to a god, that god would have to willfully participate in the study. That would probably require some sort of prayer in and of itself. However, the studies have almost never shown that praying for healing does any harm. Even further, the sense of community when those being prayed for are looped into the process more often than not has a positive outcome. I do not dismiss the power of intercessory prayer because there is some evidence that shows reduced anxiety, stress, and further, some level of healing. I also do not take that evidence and jump to the conclusion that it provides any deity's existence or the authority of any religious institution. Similar studies on yoga, guided meditation, and irreligious mindfulness show identical results. It is also worth mentioning that almost all studies target praying for healing, and this does make sense. If you were to wander into any American church, there would likely be some form of corporate prayer that asks for healing for congregants. However, people pray for things other than physical healing all the time. Prayer on a personal level has shown psychological benefits such as self-soothing and coping with various traumas. In fact, praying on a personal level feels similar to receiving love. Those feelings and inclinations are valid and helpful. I do not want to dismiss them, but they are not evidence that these benefits have a divine source. The first prayer study in 1872 
Francis Galton realized that the British royal family received far more prayers on its behalf than everyone else since praying for the royal family was a structured part of Sunday services. He wondered if they had better health and lived longer than average British citizens who didn't receive such prayers. So, Galton studied the history of the royal family and found that they did not, on average, live longer or enjoy better health than anyone else. From there, Galton randomly prayed for different plots of land, but found that his prayers had no effect on which sections of land produced more plants. Clearly, this study is purely anecdotal in nature, and not as robust as blind studies of thousands of people. His personal experiment was subject to being tainted by biases, presuppositions, and human error. However, this experiment is the most basic and juvenile research an individual can do. When you imagine this basic way of testing prayer's effectiveness, it can get rather depressing. If praying always produced the prayed-for outcomes, no prayed-for relatives would ever die of cancer, no prayed-for teenagers would ever die on their way to the ER, no prayed-for dogs or cats would ever lose a leg, and tens of millions of praying people would never die hungry. All of historical prayers, and their parents' prayers, and their children's prayers, and their spouses' prayers, do not have a 100% effectiveness in the desired outcome, but it is a hell of a hypothesis that prayer is 100% effective. The only prayer that seems to have those levels of success is the nullifying phrase uttered to God every day, Thy will be done. That phrase has as much meaning as whatever happens, happens. While the Bible does teach that whatever is asked for will be received, few Christians treat their God like a genie. However, religious leaders do often postulate that the more people that pray for a particular outcome, the more likely it'll happen. And there is indeed strength in numbers. Perhaps the studies on prayers over the years have shown that these religious leaders are right. When thousands of people share a target, their prayer bullets get closer to the bullseye. However, that correlation could simply be the result of how we give credence to research. Galton's anecdote may be no less scientific in a sense, but the more participants in any given study, the more weight is given to the result of scientific investigations, which brings back the tension of studying prayer to begin with. Can humans scientifically study spiritual and metaphysical claims? God is clearly not an empirical fact, but she or he cannot be effectively disproven either. Does this same principle apply to prayer? When tragedies happen, a common phrase from the religious and irreligious is often sending thoughts and prayers. Perhaps that's fine, but remember that this is a rather redundant phrase, because a mindful, meditative, wishing, understanding of praying makes praying and thinking synonymous terms. Structurally, the key definer of prayer in an evangelical sense must be who it is addressing. The header of their cosmic email might be the biggest distinction between thought and prayer. The power, in their mind, comes not from the action itself, but the entity with which they are communicating. This is where formal studies will fall short. Inviting any gods into these experiments will inevitably lead to biases, unverifiable claims, or ingenuine practices. Perhaps getting less scientific will clarify the issues better than academically scrutinizing every jot and tittle of rational approaches to spiritual understanding. I hope the following will be taken as sincere and not as mere straw men I set up to take down later. 
while I have personally never witnessed a miraculous healing or undeniably linked outcome that resulted from prayer, I heard stories of such happenings my whole life. These stories of effective prayer were taken from scripture, Christian history, and even modern day. The type of answered prayers range from safe travels, food being supplies, wars being won, legs being healed, and cancer going into remission. If I were to immediately reject the claim that such events were a result of answered prayer, I would be an a- My particular brand of skepticism does not mean I get to invalidate other people's experiences willy-nilly. My gut might be to dismiss every case I've ever heard, but who am I to do such a thing? Already know that science has not disproven the power of prayer. Impossibility theorems aside, I do not want to selfishly dismiss first-hand accounts or even traditionally understood stories. If one believes prayer is powerful, it very well might be. In fact, perhaps all evidence that prayer is effective and all evidence that it is not is purely anecdotal. If that is true, it is quite unsatisfactory. No sacred literature gives an exact percentage or quantifiable measure that would prove how successful communication with the divine can be. I should also address that many evangelicals would likely challenge me on what an effective prayer is by definition. Rather than wishes manifesting themselves automatically, perhaps the point of prayer is always to further sanctify your own soul through reiterating humanity's dependence on the divine. While the sentiment strikes as cultish to my predisposition, um, I will try to give it some credence. If prayer does more for the soul than society, that refocus is not inherently evil. I'm all for starting with the man in the mirror when it comes to spiritual fine-tuning. Just as religious leaders have sometimes postulated the number of participants uh, affects the power of a prayer, they also sometimes quantify the amount of faith of the person praying correlating to the task's power. If in, in evangelicalism, this doctrine is inferred from Scripture, specifically James five thirteen through 18, quote, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. End quote. It is not great exegesis to hinge the power of prayer on the righteousness of the Christian. Subpar interpretation has never stopped evangelicals before, though. I will concede that one point James seems to be making is that prayer is effective and should be believed in. I'm not sure I'm ready to make the leap that he was saying the amount of belief in praying determines its effectiveness. Regardless, perhaps that is one explanation as to why others have had more effective prayer than I have. My prayers were genuine, and I have had some desperate conversations either to the ether or to the divine my whole life. Maybe I never believed enough. I do not know how I could have believed any harder, 
I'm sure no evangelical friend would wish to shame the quality of my prayers, at least face-to-face. It would be particularly insulting, considering some of the last prayers I offered as a church-going fervent Christian were for dear Christian friends whose lives were taken far too soon. It would be especially offensive because I was praying privately, in groups, and consistently that those individuals would be spared, but I lost two friends from college in back-to-back months, despite thousands of sincere, desperate prayers being made by devout Christians on their behalf. And I'm sure my bitter tone is detectable now, but I hope it is not used to disqualify my point. Prayer's power supposedly being proven on the base of anecdote inevitably hurts some while it helps others. As I do not wish to invalidate the help prayer has provided, I wish the hurt prayer has caused was equally acknowledged. Even so, prayer has helped people. The reasons why or explanations as to how might be impossible to fully articulate. I also tend to avoid strict Western and Eurocentric thought that quickly dismisses the mystic or magical. In other countries, Eastern and African, prophetic dreams and answered prayers are reported to be more commonplace. Christians I have known have reported to me that their prayers are answered more times than not. Additionally, I've heard hundreds of pastors say that prayers are always answered, the answer being yes, no, or wait. And that feels like an optimistic cop-out. If the prayers are not at least somewhat effective... It seems to be a waste of time and energy. Again, we can keep coming back to this issue of what an effective prayer typically means. Obviously, it means accomplishing the intent, so now the question becomes, what is the intention of those who pray? Likely, the motive is different for each person praying, even in a group setting. This mixed bag might make it tempting to see if there's any correlation to motive and results. Perhaps... The divine up above rewards those with better motivation and ignores those of ill intent. The problem is that judging someone's true intentions is impossible, and discrediting someone's heart is unfair. Even if such a study could be done to find a potential cause and effect, I doubt the results would tell a story of anything other than complete randomness. Anecdotal evidence often plays into different folks' own confirmation bias. Christians who would want to believe that prayer is effective would find narratives to confirm such, and likewise an anti-Christian might search for the inverse. There is an abundance of stories that could satisfy each party, so perhaps, instead of finding some societal-level evidence on the effectiveness of prayer, it would be better to zoom in and explore how prayer works on an individual level. Firstly, prayer is undeniably therapeutic. I can testify to this fact firsthand. When I was a college student at a Bible college in the freshman level wellness class as a junior, I was an incredibly stressed out human. I had horrible sleeping and eating habits, like many college students. And that day in class, we had to record our resting heart rates uh, for the beginning of the semester to see that if at the end of the semester there were any improvements. For those who don't know, an ideal resting heart rate is 60 beats per minute. And hopefully, you're at least under 80 BPM. Well, I was at 120 BPM with spikes up to 140. And I told my instructor, and she could see that my reading of high numbers only added to my distress. She came over. She held my hand, looked me in the eyes, and said, 
I want you to take this off and pray for about five minutes, then try again. Clearly, only at a Bible college could an instructor make such a request. She added, I know it sounds silly, and maybe you do not want to pray right now, but just talk to God for five minutes and try again. Well, I obliged her and retook my heart rate. Sure enough, my BPM dropped to 90. And I'm no expert, so maybe there were other factors going on that I could not comprehend at the time. Regardless, prayer had a real impact on my physical and possibly my mental health that day. Prayer as therapy makes sense. After all, it engages a person's soul or mind or will or emotions or whatever vernacular a person is comfortable with. Prayer works as a conscious process of changing your perspective rather than just praying for simple healing. When prayer is seen less as a request for immediate deliverance and more as a decision to participate in the process of conscious self-improvement or well-wishing, its value becomes much more apparent. Afflictions are not often easily healed, and the renewal of one's mind can be nullified in a short amount of time. This is why habitual prayer can feel, and perhaps realistically is, more effective. A Christian may want to simply pray for their pain, physical, emotional, or spiritual, to go away. But it is likely more profitable to focus a prayer on wonderings about the source of that pain, whether it be a broken heart, a traumatic past, or bad habits. Prayer can be helpful for seeking truth and techniques that help maintain a healthy perspective on life. The English word prayer comes from a Latin word that means to obtain by treaty or petition, but this does not mean that the process has to be so formal. One of the biggest benefits that prayer can have is creating a space where no question is off limits. There is a reason when everything falls apart around an individual, there is a tendency to look up toward the heavens and ask why God why. Logically, a being beyond humanity would have more answers than our friends or family. In this way, prayer can be a method of wondering things that otherwise might be uninviting to think about. Prayer can have many goals, such as seeking answers, asking for events to happen, to acquire things, to make it through a task, to express gratitude, help someone else, or simply to feel connected and forgiven. And for those of us who struggle to connect with the world around us, or have difficulty forgiving ourselves when we mess up, an avenue of relief is offered through the practice of praying. At its best, prayer can create a sense of purpose, meaning, and hope in the deepest places of the human psyche. Prayer is a potent mechanism that brings this human awareness back into our conscience. This, in turn, can have a profound effect of helping to focus on things that really matter in life. Sorting out priorities and discovering oneself is a necessary process, and for some, prayer assists in that journey. However, this requires prayer to be seen as a process rather than a means to an end, and I bother to explore this idea of therapeutic prayer because I do not want to discredit any real impact prayer has had for the individual. Engaging in this practice is likely a healthy decision in this vein, and I would have no excuse to dismiss it. Even further than prayer being used in a strictly um, rehabilitative sense, Prayer on the individual level is likely completely harmless. As a private practice, prayer is simply a mindful, meditative wishing and wondering. To put any restrictions on that would venture into mind control. By all means, if people want to pray, they ought to be able to. 
In fact, praying in public before a meal or with some friends at a coffee shop might be slightly off-putting for atheists and agnostics, but frankly so is laughing too loud at a bar or making a phone call while you order food. Instead of making assumptions when you stumble across someone praying, it is probably a better perspective to view it as their business and none of yours. Likewise, when someone tells you that they will be praying for you, it is probably best to not be offended. After all, they are telling you that they are going to dedicate their time, thoughts, and consciousness to you, which is quite the expression of love. Now, it is fair to react negatively initially because it can sometimes sound like someone would rather pray about your particular ailments than actually offer practical help. I do think that sometimes prayer can be used as an excuse to not help someone, but I think the majority of the time Christians tell me they'll be praying for me, they are earnestly expressing love. Also, no studies or anecdotes seem to demonstrate that prayer consistently has the opposite of its intended effect, so knock yourself out, Christians. Pray for me as much as you want, uh, unless it's some sort of imprecatory psalm. Perhaps the more uncomfortable occurrence that can happen is the invitation or compulsions when a Christian asks if they can pray with you, uh, especially if it be in public where onlookers abide. I will be the first to admit that this has happened to me as an active Christian and not. Uh, I pretty much hated it in both mental states. I was able to push past the awkward and respect the intent, which I assume to be an expression of care. Um, Maybe the most common example of this is uh, before eating a meal with a Christian family. Nothing wrong with taking a few extra seconds to mindfully meditate about the food you are about to eat, especially with a sense of gratitude that you are able to eat that day, a privilege not everyone has. Or perhaps a Christian will come alongside you, quite literally, and wish to pray with you upon finding out a tragic death or event has happened recently. Again, the intent seems to be a genuine desire for of the Christian to express their love in an immediately tangible way. And in this way, prayer seems to not only be a harmless personal practice, um, for many it is an encouraging manifestation and outpouring of the goodness in their soul. In short, I appreciate the positive aspects of prayer. What I do not appreciate are the negative aspects of prayer. This is a much less popular thing to talk about. After all, I have built a decent case that prayer does no harm. I should clarify that prayer does no harm in as much as prayer has no consistently negative consequence. That is, if prayer is understood merely by definitions and pontifications in a vacuum without context. White evangelicalism in the U.S., however, uses this repetitive ritual as a weapon for their cults control oh yeah look you could buy my book you wanna buy my book go buy my book go to vernerbooks.com yeah yeah go to vernerbooks.com yeah yeah go buy my book and buy my book if you go to vernerbooks.com you can buy my book you can buy my book yeah the cult of christianity exclusively available on amazon you can search the cult of Christianity, how churches control, contain, and convert by John Verner, or you can go to VernerBooks.com. You can go to VernerBooks.com. Go to VernerBooks.com. Buy my book! Buy my book! Buy my book. A critique of prayer, especially if it is to be understood as a therapeutic practice, will inevitably come off as harsh. 
I do not find it misguided, though. I'm trying to use the same moral standards to problematize prayer as I do to praise it. The evangelical exercise of divine invocation is not pure. The first problem with their version of prayer is that disappointment is inevitable. As I have addressed before, a tally of how many prayers throughout history have been answered affirmatively would not be an encouraging sight. The number of desperate pleas for tragic occurrences to be assuaged that seem to have fallen on deaf ears is heartbreaking. Not only is the disappointment in undesired results, but the internal conflict the Christian must wrestle through when pleading their case. It must be stressful. My favorite anti-theist, rest in peace, was Christopher Hitchens, who summed up this problem well, quote, The man who prays is the one who thinks that God has arranged matters all wrong, but who also thinks that he can instruct God on how to put them right. End quote. Granted, Hitchens' snarky quip does not include the fact that Christians believe that it was their God who opened the communication channel and, like a guitar player in a coffee shop, wants to hear requests, regardless of whether or not he will play them. Even so, perhaps that makes the whole process even more disheartening. If a God asks for feedback, but then ignores it, that's devaluing. To declare someone autonomous but prevent their power from being proven does not strike as a loving gift. It feels more like twisted cruelty. Regardless as to whether these disappointing feelings are valid is for the cult leaders to decide, I suppose. What is not up for debate is the fact that the disappointment is inescapable. And I am not bothering to address the ridiculous prayers for Lamborghinis like I threw up to the sky as an eight-year-old. I am talking about the thousands of Christians who have tearfully begged a divine being to intervene and still ended up burying a child. It is easy to view prayer as harmless when considering the victims of tragic circumstances, but what about those who postulated that prayer would work wonders? My argument is that perhaps there are perpetrators of toxicity among those who encourage the prayerful much more than the prayerful themselves. As much attention as I gave to possible therapeutic power of praying, I want to give at least as much to the tumultuous despair it can bring. This is not a simple case of expectations set too high. The whole case for evangelical prayer is to expect a response. Dismissing an undesired response with some cliche of, well, God must have a better plan, is putting unloving lipstick on a heartbroken pig. Do not mistake the ferocious nature of deep tragedy as emotional fodder to bolster this narrative. Mundane prayers bring disappointment as well. Bless this food. How many times has blessed food contributed to heart disease, diarrhea, obesity, allergic reactions, choking, tooth decay, constipation, or vomiting? How much nutritional sustenance has been derived from factory farms, tortured animals, unethical field labor, exploitative capitalism, wasteful policies, or from hands too poor to afford the food they are providing? Even if the majority of the time that Christians expressed holy gratitude for their food, it provided health, and it came from a home garden, what about the minority of the time? That prayers were a letdown. No prayerful person gets their way 100% of the time. Otherwise, they would be God. 
they turn to a god who is supposedly on their side, and yet he does not agree with them 100% of the time. Perhaps if Christians were asking for self-serving materialistic trinkets or against the greater good, I could understand a more frequent denying of uh, insurance claims, so to speak. Instead, the most selfless, idealistic hopes and prayers for deliverance from evil that's the most common genre of request. The silence from heaven is eerie. It feels as though any god must be disinterested, not able to hear it at all, or crueler than his supposedly sinful servants. I am familiar enough with theology that I know evangelicals have some responses to this to these problems I'm bringing up. They've got them packed and ready to go. But I think those retorts will inevitably lead the conversation away from the specific point I am making. Regardless of what dots your entire religious worldview might connect, a white American evangelical doctrine of prayer will always be coupled with this appointment. I do not think it is right to counter my argument with pontifications about the type of praying one does or believes in. Don't blame the unmet expectations of the prayerful on their failure to pray correctly. Pray a hundred times in the best way possible, and I think you will still find disappointment. The anticlimax is built in. Feeling compelled to repeatedly disappoint yourself does not seem healthy. Rather than being therapy, prayer can be a reason for seeking some. If you deconstruct the most often repeated prayer throughout history, the Lord's Prayer, taken from Matthew 6, interesting insights can be noted. Quote, Our Father in heaven, hallowed or sacred, be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Now, already the bet seems hedged. The prayer starts by proclaiming that whatever this God wants will be what happens. But the next phrase strikes as a bit more confusing. Quote, On earth as it is in heaven? Well, what would be the point of heaven, then? Clearly the intent is for the person praying to align their highest ideals with God. Saying it out loud must not be for his benefit, but an avenue to exercise mindfulness, right? Well, wrong, because requests are what are sanctioned next. Give us this day our daily bread. Hoping to be fed may seem like a basic human right to our modern ears, but eating was not always so easy. It's always been necessary. And this is a fair request. In fact, providing food seems only fair if that is God's job, and seems cruel if he can feed people and doesn't. Not so fun fact, around the world more than enough food is produced to feed the global population, but more than 690 million people still go hungry. Seems like that might be a human problem, and not something we can blame on any god. Perhaps we don't need to pray for food provision as much as we need to start feeding people. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Well, I'm not sure what debt I owe God. I never asked to exist, and scripture seems to say that was his doing. What do I owe? Also, I can't remember the last time I forgave a debt unless we're talking about buying someone a coffee. Clearly, the debt was a more common currency way back when. Makes sense that Jesus would make an anti-capitalist point in that context, considering there was only so much to barter with. You could really have power over someone with 
a simple debt back in ancient times. So I'm sure those who are listening had participated in immoral strong arming of others. Not sure if this translates to our modern context. Finally, lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Here, a rather dramatic final request. Images of Satan out there placing stumbling blocks on your faith journey every two feet float through my brain. Perhaps that isn't the best interpretation, but it is likely not the worst. Regardless, this is clearly an example of being mindful. Again, perhaps a mindful meditative practice would be a helpful tool to carry in your belt when going through trauma and trials. Avoiding inquitous options that present themselves is not always innate. Taking time to think is worth doing. However, the white evangelical cult isn't encouraging mindful meditation. It's encouraging mindless repetition. Prayer in evangelicalism is corporate manipulation. The reality is that when words are spoken out loud in front of others, introspection is no longer possible. If people want a podcast with some sort of God and hope for positive feedback from their peers, the act now has an ulterior agenda. The inevitable power dynamics that will favor the well-spoken in a group prayer setting. Trojan horse dogmatic reciting of tropes decreed from authoritative cult leaders. This repetitive ritual of prayer functions as a weapon against critical thinking. It is a form of mind control. You learn how to pray from the supposed spiritual leaders and are no longer meditating on the divine without fear of repercussion. You are simulating the software. You are trying to download from those with power over you. Prayer becomes a vessel of spiritual prestige rather than a current of mindful reflection. Prayer is the tyrannical compulsion reverberating through the cult's congregants. Let us pray connotes you must pray and pray you must. The reality is that churches want you to pray before meals, before bed, when you wake up, during your wedding, during your funeral, throughout all aspects of your life. Coercion to pray is under the guise that this act is a liberating forum, but once deconstructed, turns out that prayer is an evangelical cult leader's preferred method of measuring the level of submission by an individual. One of the first questions an evangelical will ask when someone is going through any kind of struggle is, how is your prayer life going? Why? The two-folded answer, in my estimation, is that they only value you in as much as they value your connection to their God. Secondly, they want to know how you are thinking so they can judge you as clean or unclean. With such heavy emphasis on a healthy prayer life, shame easily creeps into the sacrament and dishonesty abounds. Why be honest about how often you pray, or even in the content of your corporate prayer, when allowing pure dialogue might result in spiritual demerits? If you do not think that prayer can be used in such a manipulative way, I recommend studying the history of the National Prayer Breakfast here in the U.S. The Fellowship, also known as The Family, perhaps you are familiar with the Netflix series under this title, is a U.S.-based political organization founded in 1935 by Abraham Veriday. 
the stated purpose of the fellowship is to provide a space for the decision makers of the world to share in Bible studies, prayer meetings, worship of God, and to experience spiritual affirmation and support. While that is their stated purpose, the reality is much more sinister. The National Prayer Breakfast is hosted by members of the United States Congress and is organized on their behalf by the Fellowship Foundation. The purpose of this event is for the political, social, and business elite to assemble and pray together. Coincidentally, this forum is a unique opportunity for secret deals, scandal cover-ups, and covert espionage. This is possible because the Fellowship is the most politically well-connected, and most secretly funded ministry in the United States. They shun publicity, and its members swear an oath of total secrecy. The Fellowship's former leader, the late Douglas Coe, explained that the organization's desire for secrecy by citing biblical uh, admonitions against public displays of good works, yet evidence suggests that the real reason for being covert is so that their money could be moved under the radar. And it still is moved. And many United States senators and congressmen have publicly acknowledged working with the fellowship, accepting their funding, and allowing elite members of their organization to influence actual legislation. They get away with this level of secrecy and influence because, under U.S. law, they are categorized as a church rather than a political lobbying organization. In fact, the only real common knowledge the public has regarding the fellowship is that they host the National Prayer Breakfast. Why would this seemingly sinister organization be fine associating with this highly publicized event? Likely because prayer is not usually a topic folk a topic that folks are comfortable scrutinizing. This large-scale, conspiring group of elites wield a scary amount of power. However, I am concerned with a similar power structure. I'm concerned that this kind of abuse happens through the vehicle of prayer at the church down the road from you. I hope the critique is clear. Prayer is not inherently bad. But it is not as innocent as it may appear, especially in the context of white evangelicalism in the United States. Prayer can only benefit some of the people who say or hear them. It is not universally helpful. Prayer might provide some believers fleeting or maybe even lasting levels of comfort, but comfortability is an unhealthy highest value. Prayer might offer some illusion that a person is in control over factors only a god could arrange. Most often, prayer is the last resort of people who have run out of ideas and the first resort of those who did not want to help at all. There is a real downside to praying. A false sense of achievement might be bestowed by a cult leader on one who fervently prays, while an unfounded tone of rebuke is cast on the doubtful. Prayer is a powerful placebo, but perhaps it's nothing more. And this is not an insult to the spiritually sensitive, but a warning that there are those who don't care about their thoughtfulness. Cult leaders seek to erase divine mindfulness. If you want to test my experiment, tell evangelical folk 
that you have stopped praying and have no intention to start again. Whether or not you are truthfully praying doesn't matter. You will see a sense of worry to a sense of fury flash across their faith. Cult leaders need you to pray. It is their preferred method of measuring your spiritual worth. And self-worth should not be found in the ardor of prayer. Those who have left the evangelical cult often feel guilty about their lack of prayer due to the pressure placed on them to perform the supposed blessed opportunity to talk to a loving God. The physical posture recommended for prayer, closed eyes, bended knees, and clasped hands, is somewhere between degrading and demanding. How dare evangelical cult leaders coerce children into such humiliation while they participate in such a large theory that they can't help but get it wrong. If you want to pray, do what Jesus said and go into your closet and do it privately. This public nonsense is damaging massive amounts of people, both their head and heart. In short, prayer too easily lends itself to encouraging delusional thinking. Across the spectrum, evangelicals have poisoned the well because prayer is not about the individual, but rather their cult. Communion with the divine is filtered through the rules of the finite. I would assume that many cult leaders wish to be demigods and have built their own towers of Babel based on a rewriting of the rules. Prayer can't be mindful if you aren't allowed to think critically about it. Prayer can't be meditative if you are focused on the performance of it. Prayer can't be therapeutic if it is only for people who believe a certain way. I have met more zealous evangelicals cut from a more Pentecostal-like persuasion. I do not want to dehumanize them, but they scare me. I was also scared on their behalf that they might carry with them some undiagnosed schizophrenia or BPD. Though they were nice people, they had to say the name of Jesus every other sentence and had an incessant need to pray with others. In the context of Bible college, people cut from this cloth were vilified in private as too much, but praised in public as on fire for the Lord. And I don't want to be misheard as bringing up these types of folk as an easy punching bag. Their extreme case of delusional behavior is perhaps an indicator of the more subtle hallucinations of those compelled to be prayerful by cults. If you were born on an island, and both your parents died before you could talk, and you had to survive Georgia the Jungle style, you would never pray the way evangelicals do. What might still happen is the creation in relation to imaginary friends. At a young age, imaginary friends help to establish skill in problem solving, uh, emotion management, exploring ideals, overcoming loneliness, and exploring roles in relationships. Some parents worry that children with imaginary friends don't have a good grasp on reality versus imagination, but this isn't typically true. In fact, most children understand their imaginary friends are pretend. There seem to be no indication that an imaginary friend continuing into adulthood means anything different than one in childhood. An adult with an imaginary friend might just be a sign of coping 
or having a strong imagination. It is actually within Christian orthodoxy to say that imagination plays a huge role in relating to their God. St. Ignatius postulated that prayer should meditate and imagine God's vision, and that we should picture ourselves in scripture stories in order to reflect on oneself and draw profit from it. The goal of imaginative prayer is to contemplate faith mysteries with less intellectual critique and more emotional attunement. St. Ignatius believed that this kind of contemplation opens up a soul in order to let the Holy Spirit work in, through, and around an individual. On purpose or not, Christians imagine God, what he may look like, what his essence is, or how he talks. In fact, the descriptions of burning bushes, bright lights, and metallic fire are an attempt by the writers of scripture to imagine God. An evangelical cultist may be ashamed to admit that they picture God as a male presence who speaks English primarily, looks white, or might sound like Morgan Freeman. And this is not derogatory. This is reality. Perhaps this weakens the stance that the relationship between God and man is a close relationship. Prayer might not be an equivalent to a phone call, as evangelicals seem to practice. There is nothing inherently simple or believable about a God who could send intelligible signals to millions of people simultaneously and receive requests from all of them concurrently. The complexities of prayer have been explored more in this podcast than typical evangelicals do in their lifetime. If there is a healthy form of prayer, it cannot be a simple practice with delusional assumptions. The cult of Christianity smuggles some of their most sinister ideology through a disguised carrier. If prayer were a personal meditative practice, I would not be so concerned. Prayer should be thoughtful, not thoughtless. The mindlessness of those manipulated to reciting tropes in ingenuine, unproven, disappointing wishes that come true at random is not communion with the divine. It is submission to cult leaders. Revamping the spiritual practice does not serve the interest of the evangelical cult. Through subtextual linguistics, cult leaders maintain their control and repetitive rituals, none more covert than how they pray and teach others to pray. The next time you feel compelled to pray, consider mindful meditating about the issue at hand, rather than mindlessly sending a request to the ether. Consider taking action, rather than passively waiting for divine intervention. Further question evangelical leaders about why they pray, and see if they can provide any type of satisfactory answer. If one finds therapy or enjoyment through prayers, I do not object to their personal practice, specifically if it causes no harm to the psyche of themselves or others. My point is that cautions and warning labels need to be attached to this ritual because it has been shown that the practice of prayer is used to consolidate and solidify cultist power rather than diffuse it. The controlled environment that the cult of Christianity fosters does not allow prayer to be a practice of critical thinking, which is the true method for any personal or spiritual growth.
If you wish to learn more about what's going on in my life or wish to purchase my book, go to vernerbooks.com. If you'd like to support this podcast, please continue to listen, follow, share, and consider supporting through the link in the show's notes. For as little as 99 cents a month, you can help me book guests, upgrade my production value, and start exciting projects. Thank you for listening, and remember to keep love in your life, hope in your heart, and searching in your soul.